This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Coleman Hughes traces his ancestry back to an enslaved man who was forced to work on Thomas Jefferson's Monticello plantation. His grandfather was a highly educated black man who was told not to apply for a management job because white colleagues would resent working for him. Hughes's father is black. His mother was Puerto Rican who hailed from the South Bronx in New York. So does all that give you a pretty good understanding of who Coleman Hughes is? Well, Hughes himself would say, with absolute certainty, no. Telling you the story about the color of his skin tells you next to nothing about who he is, Hughes would say. In fact, I believe he'd say that by beginning today's show with a racial description, we've fallen hard into what he calls the pernicious intellectual trap that claims race is the most salient fact about any American. In fact, Coleman Hughes would go farther. He says there are influential public intellectuals who've written and advocated persuasively for social and racial justice in America. Hughes has no bone to pick with that. But he says the anti-racist efforts championed by folks like Professor Ibram X. Kendi or author Robin DiAngelo, they aren't truly anti-racist at all. He calls it neo-racism. Coleman Hughes says the belief that places racial difference as the master narrative of American life betrays what he believes is a core American value, the pursuit of a colorblind democracy. And he lays out that thinking in his new book titled The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America. Coleman Hughes, welcome to On Point. Hi, Megna. So I would actually appreciate it if you would start with a little bit more about yourself, (laughs) if we could. Um, It's similar to how you start the book. Can you tell us the story about uh, what happened to you when you first moved from the public schools of your hometown in Montclair, New Jersey, uh, to a private school? Yeah, so it was sixth grade when I moved from public school to private school, and uh, the you know, at, at the public school I had gone to in my town, it was commonplace to have an Afro. My town was something like 30% African-American at that time. So not only did many kids have Afros, the kids who couldn't have Afros were very used to seeing kids with Afros. So there was nothing notable about it. But when I went to a private school where I was, I believe, one of four black kids in the entering class... Uh, the the non-black kids there, I don't think, were used to seeing anyone with an Afro, so it was a novelty to them. So what began as an understandable and hardly noticeable curiosity from some of the students grew into this seemingly constant and ubiquitous and irresistible urge to touch my Afro, um, often ruining whatever preparation I had done that day to get it looking good. So initially it didn't bother me, but over time it just built up and built up to the point where I cried hot tears to my parents. Um, And just, I wanted, you know, any way of making the constant touching of my afro, uh, of getting it to stop. And and so eventually I think I, I told my parents and my parents talked to the principal and 
I don't know exactly how the situation resolved, but I know that by the next year, I I had replaced yeah. the afro with an unassuming fade. You know, Coleman, I know that many people hearing this right now are probably, you know, recoiling in disgust at the thought of you being exoticized like, like that, right? And so, uh, I mean, it seems on the face of it, uh, if not conscious, an unconscious act of racism by your fellow white students. Yeah, I'm... I'm uncomfortable calling it that for the following reason. I think that, you know, it they had the best of intentions, actually. They were curious, and it was there was never a bullying spirit to it, and I had no problem making friends with them and hanging out with them in every other context. So to call it racism implies that there was some kind of, uh, some sense in which they thought I was lesser or some sense in which they were trying to other me but actually, I fit in quite well and had had a great time uh, socially at the school. Mm. It was really just this curiosity of them thinking it was fine to just touch somebody else's hair. But, you know, I, you didn't write in the book that you shared that same curiosity about their hair, right? You didn't feel the urge to uh, to tousle your the white classmates' hair. I mean, isn't there something... I mean, this is why people call it what they do, which you write about in the book. Later on, they call it a microaggression, that there's just something truly othering about wanting to touch a black person's hair. I think that there's some something about that is inherent to being a minority in mm-hmm. a country. So many of the white kids at that time would literally never have met a person with hair that went up in an afro, right? It, it's something they have only seen from movies and television. Whereas none of us black kids were for the first time encountering someone with, uh, you know, European style hair. So it just wasn't, and had we been, frankly, when I've gone to places like Japan, I've gone to, I've traveled the world with an Afro, they're just as curious. And again, it's not because they don't like me. In fact, sometimes it's because they like me a lot, but it's a, there, there is such a thing as benign curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I want to allow space for that when analyzing the motives of these kids. Right. So this is why I think this story that you opened the book with is so interesting, because I use that word microaggression just then very purposefully. Uh, Personally, I've always struggled with it because behind it, there's the presumption of, uh, of conscious aggression, right? But that's not necessarily a term, as you write in the book, that you had been familiar with until a little bit later. That's right. I was not familiar with it at the time I was going through that experience, but about four years later, I went to something called the People of Color Conference, which was uh, an annual conference where private school students from all around the country, that year I believe it was in Houston, uh, would come together and do some workshops around different ideas. And the ideas that we learned in that two or three day workshop were, I later learned, essentially called intersectionality and critical race theory. I was learning about ideas like internalized oppression, white privilege, and so forth. And this was 2012, before those concepts were widely on the lips of of people publicly. And it was there I learned the term microaggression and learned, uh, was told that I, I should reinterpret my Afro fiasco as a microaggression on the continuum with all of the racist... Uh, events that someone like my grandfather 
and even uh, um, uh, more distant ancestors would have experienced in this country, as opposed to what I had viewed it as up to that time, which was a, an annoying middle school experience. Okay. So, but t- so tell me more about that. Is it not possible that at that conference, see, many people view America and and the issue of race and racism in America as so all encompassing that perhaps it wasn't that the conference was you know misleading you and and um, t- you know telling you a victim when you weren't or calling you a victim when you weren't, but maybe it was just opening your eyes. It's like swimming in toxic water for your whole life and not knowing it because you've been swimming in that water for your whole life until someone points out to you, look, that water is toxic. Yes, yeah, so I don't think that. I, th- I don't think that for the following reason. What I went through with the Afro in middle school was not a symptom of my classmates' racism. And so to, to reframe it that way, uh, actually would lead me to have a, a mentality and a sense of otherness that's actually not warranted by my classmates' intentions. And some, there's something very pernicious about that. When you reframe an experience in a way that makes it more negative and makes you feel that you're in a hostile, a more hostile environment than in fact you are, uh, that's a very dangerous thing to do because then you, you're you're putting yourself in essentially a fight or flight uh, um, situation simply by how you're framing your surroundings, mm-hmm. and these framing effects are very powerful. Well, so tell me more about that because you also called being at that conference uh, a suffocating experience, and it's a it's a feeling that you said was repeated when you later went on to. Columbia University. Uh, what did you mean by that? Yeah. So what I meant was that the conference, you know, the the good part of the conference was that you had kids there from all across the country, from places where you know being gay was not accepted, and you had kids coming out of the closet at that conference for the first time ever, which was the beautiful half of the conference. But the less beautiful half was the fact that there was a, a suffocating atmosphere such that you were not supposed to question anything being taught. It was very much like being at church rather than at school, where you are not expected to ask questions about whether God exists and, and whether the Bible is, you know, whether there are contradictions in the Bible and so forth. You're just supposed to sit there and uh, and listen and agree. And that was the aspect of it which I thought was unhealthy because I believe in dialogue, I believe in questioning, I believe in skepticism and so forth. And then what happened at Columbia? So when I got to Columbia, uh, or let me back up, when I went to the People of Color Conference, I viewed that as a kind of strange and interesting departure from my normal default liberalism. Uh, the the default liberalism I was aware of was that you don't judge people by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, and that's the the north star of how everyone should be thinking about race. Uh, the POC conference was a departure from that, where my racial identity uh, and anyone's non-white racial identity was viewed as a kind of magic within you, and so. I kind of noted that as an odd exception from what I had been taught growing up and didn't expect to see it again. Three years later, I enroll at Columbia University, and as part of our orientation, we do this exercise where 
we go to each corner of the room according to race. Black kids in one corner, white kids in another, Hispanics in another, Asians in another. And it was this kind of ethos that reintroduced what I had mm. seen from the People of Color conference. Well, Coleman, hang on for a second because there's more to that story that we want to hear, but we'll do it when we come back from the other side of this break. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. We're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Coleman Hughes joins us today. He's author of the book, The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America. And Coleman, I definitely want to get to your you know, critique of the quote-unquote anti-racist movement and your vision for a colorblind America. But to stick with the Columbia University experience for just a second, because I think it provides an important fulcrum that will help us uh, understand better uh, or turn us into a better understanding of your your hopes for this country. I mean, you you write in the book that when you went through that ice breaking exercise uh, in your first days at uh, at Columbia, that you were asked uh, during orientation, you were asked to divide your yourselves. The students were up by race. So so there's black kids in one corner, white kids in the other corner. I guess Latino kids in another corner, and Asian kids um, in another corner. I'm not quite sure how people who identify themselves as all of the above would what they would do but but and you were told to discuss how you you each group had either participated in suffered from or um you know experienced systemic oppression and you said whatever the intent of this icebreaking exercise the effect was that i felt acutely aware of my blackness now, there are many people who care deeply about fighting racism in this country who would say, well, then the exercise was successful because that's exactly the point, to get people to think about race more and how it informs and has an impact on their lives or impacts others. Yeah, so I think I want to sharply distinguish between two things. Mm -hmm. If you want to start a conversation about racism, about legitimate examples of racism, uh, that's an appropriate conversation to have in many contexts. And I give examples in my book. But too many times when people say they want to talk about race, what they, what they really want to talk about are these abstract and racial essentialist notions 
like blackness and whiteness. I don't know what these words mean. Um, when we when we say uh, you know my blackness, are we simply talking about the the superficial fact that I have dark skin? Well, okay, I understand what that means. But if we're talking about something deeper, something about my essence, something that would separate me from a white person or from a person of a different race, well, that's the concept of race that I reject we, we need to be talking about. And, and too often that is in these kinds of settings what people want to discuss. Mm-hmm. Well, so let me just ask you then about the, the racism question. And racism in America. Have you? Do you feel like you've ever been a victim of racism? Yeah, there are there are definitely some isolated incident, incidents in my life where uh, I, I've been subject to racist bias. Mm-hmm. Well, and and what about the 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 idea that racism is so pervasive in this country that there's still sort of systems or systemic racism that, if not overtly, are still sort of woven into uh, various institutions of this country, and whether you know it or not, it's having an impact on you as a black man. Yeah, so, I mean, w- w- one thing I should add is I don't expect racism to ever fully die any more than I expect murder to ever fully go away. The- this, is a, this is a human scourge that will be with us in one or, in one or another degree until the end of time. But... The truth is that racism has declined precipitously in the past 50 years of American history by every metric that you could want to measure. And, um, you know, the the perception that it's widespread and everywhere has been caused not by reality, not by its actual increase, but by the change in the way that we've uh, consumed information starting around 2013 with camera-enabled smartphones and social media, which have led to a widespread moral panic, which says racism is on the rise and white supremacy is uh, is widespread, when in fact, all of those scourges have continued to plummet uh, in the past 10 years, um, you know, uh, as they have in the past 50 yeah, this is a really interesting part of your book, Coleman, because I think in, in insofar as my reading goes, you're the first person to link s- smartphones and uh, and social media to the perception of, uh, you know, a, a rise in the evil of racism. So I want you to hold that thought because we will definitely come back to it. But in order to understand sort of more about your your hope for a colorblind America, which we will define, I want to talk about your criticism first of, uh, you know, some of the leading lights of the quote-unquote anti-racist movement in, in modern America, right? I mean, there's a couple of names that you you uh, you have a particular uh, disdain for. And one of them is Robin DiAngelo, a very you know, best-selling author of a book called White Guilt that can be summarized as, you know, white people by virtue of uh, their race and racism in America, um, whether they know it or not, are inherently racist unless they are acting consciously to fight racism. Okay, that's a very, very rough summary uh, of her book. Um, And then there's also uh, Professor Ibram X. Kendi, and he's the author of a lot of really uh, influential books, including Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, How to Be an Anti-Racist, 
uh, anti-racist baby and and how to raise an anti-racist amongst uh, others. What's your what's your beef with this line of thinking? My beef with the general line of thinking is that uh, what I call neo-racism, this this new kind of anti-racism, rather than agree with the ethos of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King, which says that race is only skin deep and uh, th- that ultimately we are one human family that is not divided in any meaningful or important way by skin color, it says instead that race is deeply meaningful, deeply important, indelible, and that we should all be meditating on the deep importance and meaning of our racial identities and inscribe racial discrimination in public policy essentially for all time. Uh, that's my that's my general beef. Now, if you want to get specific to Kendi and D'Angelo, they are they are different and should be talked about differently. In D'Angelo's case, uh, and her book is is White Fragility. I oh, think sorry, I misspoke. Thank you, thank you for that correction. Yeah. Uh, D'Angelo is quite focused on the psychology, the inner psychology of of race, and the effect of her thesis is to really divide and um, uh, to, to lead to a very kind of unhealthy and unequal relationship between whites and blacks, in my view. So I'll give you one example from her book. She argues that that white women should not cry around black people. And the reason that she gives for this is apparently black people are triggered by the sight of white women's tears because of all the times in history uh, such as Emmett Till, most famously, when false accusations of rape were used to get black men and boys lynched. Now, I don't know exactly who she's hanging out with, but I can guarantee you that the vast majority of well-adjusted and, and psychologically healthy black people do not think about lynching when they see a white woman crying. That's just not uh, an association that really happens. But she's encouraging white people to take this kind of posture towards black Americans, which almost treats them as children to be tiptoed around. And I don't think that that's a psychologically healthy basis for a relationship between equals. Mm. Well, so, uh, and then on to... It's hard to summarize the, uh, you know, the the considerable writings of uh, of both of these... These these people, but we'll we'll do our best because then on to on to uh, Professor Kendi, mm-hmm. um, especially in his book uh, Anti Racist, I believe he lays out a very very clear thesis mm-hmm. about, you know, it's not good enough uh, due to American history and particularly the history of slavery, Jim Crow, uh, etc. That it's not good enough to just say everyone is equal now in America. Uh, you know, he uh, prescribes a very uh, active and affirmative uh, list of things to do to remedy current racism and rectify past wrongs. I mean, you quote him in the book. You, you quote his writing as saying, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Now, I believe he's using that word 
provocatively. Mm-hmm. But what he re- he's really saying there is like is programs to help repair the genuine harms of the past. Call it discrimination, but it or not, but it's an affirmative sort of a rectifying uh, set of policies there. Why do you call that neo-racism? Yes, yeah, so I call that neo-racism not for the same reasons I, I call D'Angelo uh, neo, neo-racist. Uh, Kendi is not really focused on anyone's inner psychology. He's simply focused on policy and the effects of, race, uh, of policy on outcomes. So Kendi, Kendi's thesis is that what we need to get to uh, by, by almost any means necessary is a society in, in which because black people are 13% of the American population, black people therefore make up 13% of every domain you could possibly really imagine, every domain of importance, whether that be wealth, incarceration, uh, income, uh, you know, 13% of doctors, 13% of lawyers, on and on down the list. Now, I the, the, the problem with this is that uh, you know, it, it's actually just not in a multicultural society where you have different cultures, different histories, different geographical distributions, different demographics, you're not going to see identical outcomes unless you have a monoculture. And so that can't be the metric that uh, by which we define success or else we are, we're never going to get there and we are going to racially discriminate on the uh, on the illusory path uh, to get there, so my my alternative, which I think is much much better, is exactly what Martin Luther King wrote in his book "Why We Can't Wait," where he acknowledges absolutely we have to address the legacy of slavery, absolutely we ought to care about racial inequality, but the way we ought to address that is with a broad based anti poverty class based. Uh, uh, policy, which by definition will disproportionately help blacks and Hispanics because blacks and Hispanics are disproportionately likely to be poor, but it will be done on the basis of socioeconomic class, not on the basis of race. Mm. And it it won't define uh, statistically equal outcomes as its metric uh, of success. But Coleman, can I? I just want to push a little bit more because I think the language that you use in the book here um, is 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 quite direct and eye opening. I mean, you select passages from uh, Kendi's writing, from D'Angelo's writing, from sort of anti-racist thinking overall. Um, and again, you call it neo-racism because it is uh, putting race as the defining feature of American life. But I mean, you go further. I mean, you call basically. From my interpretation uh, of your book, you, you call those efforts essentially also anti-white. That it's the neo-racism is that it's it's choosing, you know, one form of uh, of subjugation in terms of the subjugation historically of black people in this country, and trading it for another um, because of a of a power dichotomy that um, anti-racists uh, s- subscribe to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I mentioned many policies in the book, including even some that prioritized emergency COVID aid on the basis of race. Uh, and, and in each case, to the disadvantage of 
either white people in general or or white men, uh, often to the disadvantage of of Asians as well. And in, in certain cases, we could talk about affirmative action. But the the policies prescribed by someone like Kendi invariably racially discriminate against either whites, Asians, or both. And and so, you know, I could pull my punches and say, well, that's not that's not really racist policy. That's not really the kind of racist policy that we think of when we talk about Jim Crow. And I, I acknowledge there's certainly a, a difference. But I do think that this word uh, racial discrimination and racist policy should apply to cases that racially discriminate, that choose whether or not you get something based on the color of your skin. Um, and that's what the word used to mean. Mm-hmm. That's the, uh, So I, I'm trying to rescue that definition and have it apply ethical clarity to to policies that racially discriminate, yeah, whatever, gl- their, whatever their intent. I'm really glad that you clarified that because that was a question I had in reading the book because, you know, uh, in terms of racialized laws in the past, again, Jim Crow being the uh, most the set of Jim Crow laws being the standout amongst them all. I mean, the reason why I would say that King and others um, were so profoundly focused on achieving a colorblind society is that those laws at that time were designed to withdraw the full spectrum of rights of citizenship from a certain group of people. That's what made them racist. Where and so therefore the solution to that was a colorblind society. We you know eliminating every law that prevented a person, no matter the color of their skin, from um, enjoying the entire fruits of being an American. Um, whereas now, what you're identifying as racist, um, you know, in ter- let's let's talk about affirmative action. You know, even though it's moot now because of the Supreme Court, but laws designed to enhance people's ability to access the the fruits of uh, being a citizen. Why are those necessarily racist? Well, I mean, I think this is kind of a trick of language, right? Okay. When you have a limited number of spots, and you you say, okay, we're going to lift up one race. Well, that just does come at the disadvantage of another race. And you know, people play language games here by saying it's not a zero-sum game, but it just is a zero-sum game, right? There's no way to racially discriminate in favor without racially discriminating against when you have a, a limited number of spots. And so that's that's the predicament, and that's what, you know, I... I cannot obey this philosophy which says it's racially discriminatory when it happens to my group, but it's something else when it happens to a different group. I don't think that's consistent. I don't think it's rigorous, and, and I don't think it's a good, uh, a good blueprint for a healthy multiracial society in the long run. Coleman Hughes is with us today. His book is The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America. We'll have much more when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. 
I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Coleman Hughes is with us today. He's author of The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America. Um, And uh, Coleman, I actually just want to step back in in history a little bit, um, because a lot of what you write about in your book regarding your your hope and view of, uh, of a colorblind America comes from your reading of the great civil rights leaders, (laughs) of course, Dr. King. And, you know, that famous, famous line from King's speech about, you know, not being judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Um, I mean, it's one of the iconic ideas uh, in American oratory history. Well, you know, we reached out to, I mean, we doing our research, we found that there's lots of different interpretations of what King uh, meant by that. But first, let's let's listen to that moment from his I Have a Dream speech in 1963. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Well, Dr. Kira Banks is a psychology professor at St. Louis University, where she researches black Americans' experiences with discrimination and mental health. And she said on her podcast, Raising Equity, that despite some rhetorical turns of phrase, she believes the substance of King's advocacy was very much race conscious. I hear people invoke Dr. King in saying, well, we shouldn't we shouldn't talk about race. We shouldn't see race. We should just treat each other as individuals as King wanted. He said he wanted people to be treated fairly. He didn't say we should ignore their skin color and their race. And here's King's Pulitzer Prize winning biographer Taylor Branch, who agrees. On PBS in 2013, Branch spoke about Dr. King's approach approach to race conscious advocacy and policymaking. The bus boycott, the sit-ins, the freedom rides, getting the right to vote. If you're not a citizen, uh, you're not even up to the table where you can start dealing with these issues. To me, Martin Luther King saw race as the gateway. If you can deal with race and the fundamental denial of common humanity through race, then it opens up possibilities. So Coleman, respond to that. The, um, you know, here we have two very uh, knowledgeable scholars saying, well, it's not as simple as just uh, not judging people by the, by the color of their skin. No, no great thinker could be reduced to any one quote. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll acknowledge that caveat. But I will not agree that, uh, you know, the general thrust of Martin Luther King's advocacy and writing and essays was very much in line with that quote. Um, I mean, that I, I in my book, I list 10 or 12 different quotes where mm-hmm. he he is, you know, constantly talking about the fact that race is only skin deep and common humanity, uh, oneness in Christ uh, that, you know, when when we when we ask if someone is the uh, a partner in the fight for racial justice, we will not ask what their race is, but we will ask what their beliefs are. That the fundamental thing about man is not his skin or his hair color, but the quality of his soul. 
These are other quotes that black supremacy would be equally evil as white supremacy, he said multiple times. There's quote after quote after quote, not simply the content of our character quote. And um, it, it was a central part of his philosophy. And whenever he made specific recommendations about policy, he did not make race-conscious recommendations. Anyone can go back and read his book, Why We Can't Wait, where he comes up with what he called the uh, Bill of Rights for the Disadvantaged, which was his grand proposal for policy to address disadvantage in America on the basis of class, not on the basis mm -hmm. of race. Mm -hmm. I think there is the truth about who has tried to sort of co-opt his legacy is that the race-conscious anti-racists of today have tried to bend his writing and saying to make it more in line with what they believe. Your criticism is that uh, uh, race-conscious anti-racism now, does, it has, you say it's moved away from the fundamental um, appreciation of common humanity mm -hmm. that you say the civil rights movement was, was based on. Is that a fair mm -hmm. assessment? Yes. Okay. And so by, by centering race rather than common humanity, that's where you make the argument that anti-racism is the neo-racism. That's right. Okay. Well, what I find so interesting about that is um, you even point out that not only Dr. King, but other people like Roy Wilkins, who was the executive director of the NAACP, Bayard Rustin, you know, the giant in the American civil rights movement. I mentioned A. Randolph Phillips, who, who organized the, the March on Washington, that all of these leaders, um, both in the, in the 50s, 60s, and even in the 70s, when some of the affirmative um, action programs began in the federal government, that they warned against what they called black supremacy? Oh, well, certainly when the, when the black power movement came about in the late 60s, um, A. Philip Randolph, Roy Wilkins, Bayard Rustin, and Martin Luther King all made very clear that the philosophy of black power, which was sort of the Black Lives Matter of its day, though you, you don't want to make too much of yeah. a historical equation there, but in its rhetoric and its general feeling of race consciousness and black pride and, uh, you know, chest-thumping racial pride and so forth, uh, they made very clear that that was not the, the proper way to think and speak about race and that, uh, in fact, in his final book, Where Do We Go From Here?, Dr. King spends all of chapter two critiquing the black power movement and, in fact, recommends that they change their name to power for poor people. His critique was that they focused on race rather than what they ought to focus on at this point, which was class. Mm. Well, for example, uh, one of the uh, King quotes that you that you mentioned in the book comes from Dr. King's 1957 speech called Give Us the Ballot, which he gave in Washington, D.C. And I'm going to just read a, a, a little excerpt of it because... In it, he says, quote, we talk a great deal about our rights, and rightly so. We proudly proclaim that three-fourths of the people of the world are colored. And then he says, all of these things are in line with the unfolding work of providence, but we must be sure that we accept them in the right spirit. We must not seek to use our emerging freedom and our growing power to do the same thing to the white minority that has been done to us for so many centuries. Our aim must never be to defeat or humiliate the white man. 
that's that's an interesting part of the speech, which I don't think is often um, is often highlighted. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, Dr. King was a very deep thinker and a great leader. And so he could foresee a potential future in which his movement was successful enough that such that black people had enough power to abuse power. Um, That was a very difficult thing to envision in 1957, but it requires a great intellect to kind of, you know, ward off even small probability events. And he had an extraordinary humility about him, even in a position of disadvantage, knowing that it is incumbent on someone fighting for justice to understand how far is too far, to understand what is your line. So one of my problems with the neo the, the neo racist philosophy is that it has no internal limiting principle, right? Someone like Ibram Kendi has never in anything he's written that I can see articulated what would be too far. So for example, what would stop in Kendi's philosophy, what would stop someone from supporting giving black people two votes instead of one? Well, you could you can make all the same arguments he makes for every other policy, right? Black people were denied the vote for hundreds of years, and that directly led to all kinds of terrible policies and and a lack of power. Why not repay that by giving black people two votes? Well, there's nothing in his philosophy which says, here's the reason we can't do that. It's too far. Martin Luther King was very clear about not only how much change he wanted to see, but what kinds of change he did not want to see past that point. And I think uh, neo-racism struggles to limit itself. Mm. Well, in terms of the historical the historical figures that you point to, uh, Clarence Mitchell, who is the chief lobbyist at the NAACP, you, you say that when um, in the 70s, early 70s, when the uh, plans came out of the federal government for you know, accelerating black access to academia, to jobs, et cetera, um, which was then called the quote-unquote Philadelphia Plan. You say Clarence Mitchell called it a calculated attempt to break up the coalition between Negroes and labor unions, end quote. And then Roy Wilkins, executive director of the NAACP, I mean, his language is pretty unequivocal. I mean, he called the black power movement a reverse Mississippi, a reverse Hitler, a reverse Ku Klux Klan. I mean, that is... That is intense language, but I wanted to bring that up because because of uh, it complicates our understanding of what the goals of the civil rights movement were. But you know this idea of power, though, which is so central to uh, understanding. I think you know even beyond race, everything in American life: economic power, social power, political power. Um, but when when layering racial history on top of that, I mean, Coleman, you you can't really. It's hard for for me to see that uh, black Americans uh, do not have a power that would be representative of their um, their proportion or even just status as as Americans, right? We've had – in all of U.S. history, we've had one black president and he was half black and half white, mixed race president, one – you know, black vice president. She's half black, half Indian. Um, you know, you mentioned it earlier that uh, there are there's plenty of evidence of incarceration rates being higher amongst black men. Of that, of a yawning wealth gap between white Americans and black Americans on average. Now, in your book, you say those are averages, but the truth is Americans live their lives 
uh, not on average, but on their, their, their individual experience. That is totally true. And we can never reduce any one particular person to an average. But the averages tell us something about the effects of policy in this country. I mean, don't they? What's your, what would be your response to someone who says, well, when you focus on individual experience and ignore the averages, you're being almost deliberately naive? Well, uh, the, the, if we're suggesting that until we have equal outcomes across all of society, we should implement policy, public policy that racially discriminates in order to, quote unquote, get there. Uh, that is the argument that I am challenging. I don't think it follows from the fact that we don't have equal outcomes, what is sometimes called equity, that we should therefore have a regime of public policy that discriminates against individuals on the basis of race. So th that that's really the argument that I, I take issue with uh, for the reasons I've outlined. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we're running low on time. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen because um, your book was such a compelling read. But in terms of creating a colorblind America, in the end of the book, you close with suggestions on, on what exactly that would mean and how to do it. So, you know, briefly tell me, what would it mean to have a colorblind society in this multiracial democracy? Well, first of all, you know, getting to a colorblind society is a bit like getting to a peaceful society. I don't think we'll ever get there fully, but we have to know where we're going and when we're going backwards. So I view colorblindness as a North Star to guide our path. And uh, the way we do that is, you know, first, everyone in their personal life can check in with themselves to see if they are living the value of colorblindness in their own lives with their own friends and family. Um, you know, in, in certain situations, you can blind yourself to data that might uh, bias you, right? Um, you know, make, make more and more, make society more and more like a blind audition where, you know, you, you actually don't give yourself the data that might uh, um, uh, bias you in any particular situation. And then fight for public policy that uh, uses class rather than race in cases where we want to lift up disadvantaged people. And, uh, you know, I think in particular, the Democratic Party has to remember and, and rescue this value of, of colorblindness and um, not make it a, a partisan issue because it's actually pretty popular among uh, rank-and-file Democrats, at least when you ask poll questions a certain way, uh, should not let the Republican Party become the party of colorblindness. Uh, so I think Democrats need to get their house in order on this issue. And, um, and in that way, we can hopefully inch by inch move towards a, a healthier colorblind society. How do we do that while also acknowledging the profoundly racialized history of this country? I mean, I, I, to, to your credit, I have not heard you once say, or nor, nor is it in the book, a denial of the, the evils of racism as have been met on people uh, for centuries in the United States. So how do we acknowledge that while also pursuing the colorblind society that you're... Uh, you're advocating for? You know, I think that we've, many of the things that we have done 
are in the correct spirit when it comes to acknowledging and atoning for the history of slavery and Jim Crow. We have a magnificent Smithsonian Museum in the nation's capital with an extensive exhibit on slavery and the Middle Passage. Two of our uh, 11 federal holidays, uh, Martin Luther King Day and Juneteenth, are dedicated to different aspects of the, the struggle for black freedom, Black History Month, um, and so on and so forth. All of these kinds of things, I think, as symbolic acknowledgments but aren't are they a little superficial, important. though? I mean, when people want no, to remedy the when they, when they want to remedy the wrongs, they want to remedy what they see as the, you know, intergenerational uh, momentum of uh, that that has held uh, Black Americans down. I I would I would strongly contest the idea that they're superficial because each one of these things was hard fought and thought to be quite significant before it happened, and then once it's happened, it it's pocketed and called superficial. So I, I think symbolic acknowledgments are quite important. Uh, and we can have those symbolic acknowledgments while at the same time pushing towards a public policy that is colorblind. Well, Coleman Hughes's book is The End of Race Politics. Very much appreciate the book, Coleman, and you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Megna. This is On Point.